Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I'm good. Excited to be here for another episode. How are you, Sarah? I am doing well. I got some good news this morning, so it's always a good day. Yeah, that's good. And uh, we're actually recording on a Friday, which is always uh, uh, everybody's usual favorite day of the week. Yeah, and it's inching closer to five o'clock, right? There you go. There you go. Although we <laughs> did have snow on the ground overnight, so I'm not sure what that was all about. Maybe it was an April Fool's joke, maybe. I think it was. It's like 50 degrees and sunny right now. So yeah. So well, yeah, that's good. Can't complain. What are we doing today? Well, today we have an, another amazing guest. Today we are welcoming on Austin Brake to the show. Um, Austin is a member of the Heroes program at UNMC. So welcome to the show, Austin. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Really happy to be here. It's uh, my first podcast, so we'll see how this goes. Well, hopefully we don't break you from podcasts. <laughs> I think we'll be all right. Have we broken anybody so far? I hope not. I don't think we have. I don't know. People say they would come back on. I don't know. We've had some people back on a couple of times. Yeah. I'm super excited to learn some, uh, some stuff today. So this is great. Really excited to have you on, Austin. No, thank you again. So, I mean, that's uh, nothing better to do on a, a Friday, right? While we're waiting to warm up. I uh, just snow on the ground and throw me for a loop. I got a soccer tournament this weekend with the kids. So trying oh. to uh, make sure the fields stay dry is kind of a goal. Yeah, they just had the World Cup draw. I don't know if you follow that, so if yep. your kids play soccer. So that was pretty exciting. It was, it was. Um, uh, get to see who all the teams play and everything else. So it's a, it's a big event. I um, maybe not as big in the U.S. as it is in the rest of the world, but uh, soccer following, I think, is growing in the U.S. as well. It's getting there slowly, slowly, but we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, Austin, do you want to um, tell us about your role and what the Heroes program is? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, being at UNMC, we love acronyms for everything, right? And Heroes <laughs> definitely has to stand for something really long. Uh, HEROES stands for Healthcare and Emergency Responder Organization Education Through Simulation. So HEROES for short. Um, we are a interdisciplinary approach to biological, chemical, radiological, and natural disaster emergencies. And we're able to use a wide range of simulation and visualization technologies to provide emergency preparedness training education to healthcare providers and students across the state of Nebraska and beyond. Uh, using our mobile simulation unit and our website and social media channels. So one of the neat things about our program is with our, you know, our mobile simulation unit, uh, we're able to provide a quality education to rural EMS agencies and critical access hospitals. Well, otherwise, we really wouldn't have access to those opportunities to attend uh, simulation training um, because you know, they have to leave work, leave home. It's always a funding issue of getting people to go you know, someplace, usually if you're out in central western Nebraska, you're talking about bringing someone all the way over here to, to Omaha Lincoln area, or maybe send them to Denver, and it's just a cost issue for these facilities. And since the program's been started, program actually started in 2005, it's funded through a, uh, a program's excellence grant through the University of Nebraska. And in 2006 is when the mobile simulation unit started, and the unit has logged over 80,000 miles across the state of Nebraska since 2006. The last two years kind of being a little bit of a wash thanks to you know COVID and everything that's been going on but we currently live um in the college of nursing here at university of Nebraska medical center's campus but frequently collaborate with college of medicine allied health professions and the center for preparedness education that is very cool yeah i never would have come up i was trying to figure out what that could be an acronym for and i never would have come <laughs> up with that it's way way too long but i figured it had to be something just because that's you're right that's exactly what we do yeah, it's, it's definitely something cool. Uh, I mean, our dress code here, we're allowed to wear S's underneath our shirts, but we don't tell anybody. Uh, capes are optional. Um, you know, you don't want to get stuck in the airplanes anymore, so it's kind of dangerous. I think, I think the capes and the S's are appropriate. You guys are doing very good work. 
No, we're, we, we really enjoy what I do. I, I love what I do. I've been at the program, actually, I'm relatively new. So I started here as a new program coordinator and instructor for the program in officially December, really. Um, but I don't consider my official start really until about February because I was here for about four days and did some training and overlap with the outgoing coordinator uh, who retired. And then we had a baby. Uh, so I went on paternity leave. And which is great. It was over the holiday season and everything, but uh, kind of came back and picked everything up here in, in February. So I think I've really been going at this for about two months now, but it's been great. Well, congratulations. congratulations. Yeah. You getting any sleep? You know, we're, she's three months old uh, right now. So we're kind of getting back into the, the sleep regression stage. Uh, and we recently just transitioned her into her crib. So um, I used to get about seven hours of sleep at night and I'm getting about three this time, this week. So we'll see if things get better soon. Good luck. Yeah. Powered by Red Bull. So, uh, <laughs> not endorsing a Red Bull by any means, but I love my caffeine. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the, about around the turn of the century, there was, you know, big concern with bioterrorism events and some things that happened. Is that how this idea was born? As you understand, it had some, some to do with preparation for any kind of those kind of events is that what the idea was I know that's where the biocontainment unit essentially came from yeah um is that was around the 2004-2005 area um when the program started so right around the same time as well um the original grant um writing and kind of where we are today uh has shifted a little bit um as you would expect just by the the nature of, of doing business and education and trying to mold ourselves to fit, you know, what are our clients, uh, students across the state, healthcare providers, et cetera, are asking for us and what they need. Um, so that biosimulation education training is kind of where it is led. Um, but one of the, the bigger things, you know, we've transitioned ourselves to, uh, especially with the mobile simulation kind of being unique in that aspect uh, early in 2006 is, really, really focusing on that experiential learning, that hands-on simulation training, uh, which is truly a, a big passion of mine. I uh, absolutely love being able to just kind of bear witness to those aha moments when we can connect something that a student or a learner, if you may, um, has learned in the classroom. And we can put them through this safe simulation environment where they can make mistakes and it's totally okay. And then they realize, oh, boy, I didn't do that right, or I could do this better. Uh, and it just connects what they learn in the classroom. We can make those mistakes in that safe place before they get to, uh, you know, to a, a real patient environment where you make a mistake, it could be deadly and you can't recover from it as quickly. That's very cool. As an educator, I always love those aha moments when you have your students that are actually, they actually learn something. It's so cool. Um, so with your uh, simulation education. You travel all around and um, work with these facilities and individuals. What types of simulations are you doing? Great question. So it really just kind of depends on what they um, might want, what they're looking for. We're able to be a little more flexible um, with that to, to meet their needs and kind of serve them where they're at. So from um, hands-on simulations and stuff that we've done, uh, it could be um, learning how to put on personal protective equipment, um, how to don and doff it correctly. Uh, and once you take it a step further, once you put on that PPE, you know, how can you just perform routine skills? You know, starting an IV with three layers of gloves on is a little bit different initially than starting an IV with one pair of gloves. But once you get the hang of it after one or two go around, it's not that big of a deal anymore. Um, you know, but how, once we add in a papper hood, you know, how do you go ahead and start that IV uh, or perform an intubation while they're in a papper? Um, so we're able to provide, you know, those kind of rudimentary skills um, and build provider confidence, which is ultimately going to increase our provider and patient safety um, by those skills. But then we can incorporate a bunch more things into it by, you know, doing full scale simulation exercises, um, you know, simulating uh, mock disasters, uh, going through triage. Um, so we can scale it all the way up or we can keep it really simple. Uh, where, hey, maybe they just need to focus on how to do some routine uh, intubation without the PPE, and we're able to do that as well. That's very cool. I need to um, see if I can tag along with you guys to one of these. It just sounds like super interesting to 
witness everything that happens. You know, it's, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, and, you know, believe it or not, we're actually a really small team. There is uh, of three of us full-time. Uh, we've got two kind of part-time consultants that give us a day or two a week um, of FTE. But, uh, you know, we're, we're small at Mighty. Our schedule's filling up like crazy, which is fantastic. And we're, you know, rewriting curriculum and always staying up to date on things that are going on so we can deliver that content to people. Uh, you know, my, my background actually isn't nursing. Uh, we're I'm bridging that gap. I actually come from a, a fire EMS and a law enforcement background. Um, that's what I've done the last 15 plus years. Um, so being able to bring in disaster response, emergency preparedness um, into this role, and that's basically the bread and butter of, of a first responder, if you may. Um, but when I'm working a lot more with nurses and hospital staff, um, you know, they just don't get that training. Um, a, a, a BSN, RN nursing student going through school, you know, they have a two-hour block in emergency preparedness. And that's all they get. Um, so they might get the definition of it and, you know, read a chapter in a book, but they don't get any hands-on experience. And that's where we had to come in and we got to fix that. Um, and same thing with working at the College of Medicine, you know, our medical students, providers, and residents and fellow programs as well to, you know, kind of open that light on, hey, what would you do or what could you do and how would you respond? Um, just this morning, I was actually talking with uh, uh, a partner over at UNO. We're actually developing some uh, VR, AR, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality content um, to bridge into that space a little bit more uh, for disaster response preparedness. Uh, it's going to be modeled a little bit after uh, the Joplin tornado with a hospital uh, being damaged. You know, and as a, you know, as a provider in the hospital, you're like, well, what would I do? Could this happen to me? And it's when you think it doesn't happen to you that it's more likely going to. So you're better off preparing for it anyways. As a first responder, were you a student for this of this before you became the teacher now? Did you go through any of this training before? Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, it's uh, it was really funny. When I started, uh, I was able to, uh, and I got access to the system, the hero system. I was able to go back through and uh, look at some of the really old photos and stuff we had. And um, I, I graduated from Creighton University, and heroes actually came. Uh, to Creighton and did um, education there. Uh, and I was able to go through that as a student. So now being here, uh, uh, you know, as the program coordinator, kind of leading the, the charge for where we're going to kind of take the program and who we want to be involved with, it's been pretty neat. That is a pretty cool experience when you go from being the student to then the teacher and you figure out as a student, you're just kind of doing it right. I mean, trying to learn it and everything mm -hmm. else. And now as a, as the educator, you have to kind of know the whys and the you know answers to the questions uh, as opposed to asking the question. So it's, that's neat. You get to see both sides of it. It's probably, probably helps your experience a little bit. I'm assuming. It does. It's been fun. You know, I, I've kind of been involved in, in higher education, adult education since about 2012 um, first teaching as an adjunct down at Creighton, uh, in their EMS department, you know, teaching the new EMTs and paramedics and, uh, you know, went off and, and worked in the clinical atmosphere. And prior to coming here, I was actually working as a critical care flight paramedic, uh, on the helicopters. Uh, absolutely loved that job. I got to see, uh, you know, a lot of really sick patients, uh, more medical than trauma. Uh, you'd be surprised. Everyone thinks, oh, you're going to land, uh, take the helicopter and land on a lot of bad car accidents. And that's, maybe about 10% of what you actually do. Um, but uh, the rest of it's actually medical stuff and being able to kind of see all that and, and then bring it full circle here. Prior to coming over to Heroes, I was over the IXL program. So got to help with a lot of uh, hands-on medical simulation, more of that experiential learning, uh, which I can then bring in here at Heroes. Very cool. So if we were to take it all the way back to kind of the start of your medical career, what made you want to get into emergency medicine? You know, um, I would actually, I, I joke uh, with my little brother about this, but I blame him. It's his fault. Um, so, um, you know, my undergrad, I was actually a poli-sci and business major. Um, and then um, my younger brother, um, this was, oh, 2009 area around there. Uh, it was actually diagnosed with epilepsy. And I did not know what to do. Uh, should he have a seizure um, and want to, you know, be a little bit more prepared. So put myself through a uh, EMT elective course down at Creighton. Uh, and for lack of a better word, I'd say I kind of caught the bug. So uh, got through the course. Uh, EMT is a, a one semester course. You're doing, you know, eight hours of didactic work a week plus 
you know, field and clinical time uh, for that one semester long class and, uh, you know, look to stay active and, you know, use that education that I have and started off as a, a volunteer firefighter EMT um, here in the Omaha metro area. Um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of how I got to start land on my little brother. So just trying to be able to take care of family if you may. Very cool. That's a great story. Great story. I was hoping it wasn't something like he kept injuring himself and you wanted to know how to. <laughs> that would have been my little brother. He, he rode dirt bikes when we were growing up. So we were in and out of the ER a lot. Right. Or, or, or he was doing chemistry experiments and creating things that you're like, I think I need a hazmat suit up here. <laughs> I mean, all very possible as well. I'm the oldest of four, so it's it's definitely possible somewhere in there. Um, but that's uh, no, that's not the way the story took the turn. So no, no, that's great. That's great. So um, you guys are going out for training, and I so, so you said that I think you said that the places can kind of decide kind of what kind of things they kind of want to get education on. Um, yeah. um, so you kind of have a almost like a menu and say, hey, we want to look at a. a chemical disaster or a biological disaster or something and so you guys just all have this stuff just in your I, I mean like your scooby-doo van and you drive out to wherever you're going and and then start training people you know pretty much um so we've got uh, a bunch of content that i uh, you know we've developed over the years um and continue to develop to take out um i don't want to say it's canned by any means because we customize you know, everything to that particular uh, organization or group that we're going out to, to make sure that it, it's relevant uh, and up-to-date for them. Um, but at the same time, if, you know, you know, organization, you know, X reaches out and says, you know, hey, we're really looking to get some training on this or could use some help. Um, can you guys offer something? Just because we don't have something pre-built doesn't mean that we're not going to work with them, come up with something and go out and, and meet their educational need. That's, that's truly the goal for us. So. And are you guys using like scenarios that have happened or do you just sit around and kind of come up with scenarios of events to try to maybe challenge people and say, hey, this walks in your door or this happens, you get this call over the radio from so-and-so, you got, you know, so many people that were exposed to this, what do you do? How do you guys brainstorm those sorts of things? You know, so from my experience, the best way if you can teach somebody is from personal experience. Um, you know, a lot of the groups, hospitals you work with, um, uh, even faculty that I've worked with when I was over previously at IXL, um, you know, we'll just ask everyone, hey, you know, what's your experience? What's something that went really well? What's something that went really, really bad that we can pull from and use it as a teaching moment? Because then we don't have to initially play the what if um, you did this instead, what if we did this instead? Because, uh, you know, Generally, you're going to have either a, hopefully a positive, could be a potentially negative outcome uh, as well. But, you know, the pull from previous experience is definitely beneficial. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we'll definitely get around the table uh, and, and kind of, you know, do a tabletop of, boy, what if this happened? Um, how would we want the structure response to that? How could it look? What would be the best practices um, of the response based on current guidelines, recommendations for whatever the situation may be? Uh, and then develop a, a, a simulation around that where um, we're able to guide our learners through, you know, what that response might look like. Um, and we're able to do this not only with, you know, on the spot there, hey, we're in front of you education, but we do uh, pre-work as well. So uh, when we partner with a lot of the community colleges uh, and other UMC uh, campuses throughout the state, and we go out there, we're sending them education that they're able to look at in advance. Uh, so we don't have to sit there and, you know, bore everyone by PowerPoint before we can get up and play. Our goal is once we get there, you want to hit the ground running because you're going to learn the best, uh, especially the people here in, in healthcare, emergency response, et cetera, is, hey, let's get our hands on it. Let's touch it. Let's play with it. If we break it. It's okay. We can fix it because uh, it's a training environment. We can move on from there. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So, I mean, in the Midwest, and, and Sarah and I usually joke about this when we first start on the show, we talk, you know, the Midwest, we always talk about the weather. And mm -hmm. so when you think about emergency preparedness in the Midwest, you think about tornadoes and floods for the most part. I mean, occasionally, occasionally we'll have something else. So I assume you guys all have scenarios related to these things and kind of what the local facilities can expect and the local, um, you know, 
administration, public health, uh, public infrastructure, those things. So that'd be things that you guys would be maybe involved in. Yeah, um, being able to go out, uh, help with those either you know live exercises or even a tabletop exercise, uh, playing the what if game. You know, sitting around a room before we actually do the whole thing and the you know, the simulation exercise is something we'd love to help out with. You know, as far as the, the emergency preparedness disaster response, uh, take it a step further, uh, start incorporating the seaburn uh, activities. Uh, sorry, the, the chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, et cetera, activities. Um, and uh, then we can start pulling from more and more of our, our repertoire as well uh, and get that there. So, you know, if there is a, a simulation uh, exercise or something going on in the state, we'd love to be involved. And, um, you know, one of the things I've found in my, uh, my time, short new time being here at Heroes is thanks to COVID, we've had to kind of reintroduce our mobile program, um, you know, to a lot of our key stakeholders throughout the state because, you know, with COVID, we didn't get out on the ground a lot. It was more uh, online education, uh, website-based. Uh, so being able to get out there and boots hit the ground is something, you know, I'm, I'm loving to do. So I've got a, a tour of the state coming up here soon where I'm going to go around and, you know, start shaking hands and kissing babies and, you know, saying, hey, this is who we are. This is how I'd love to help you. And, you know, the best part, you know, I should mention, guys, is, you know, since we're grant funded, for us to come out and provide this education to all these entities is free. You know, the only thing we ask for is, hey, reimburse our fuel and maybe help us out with the hotel room if we're going to be there for a while. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, it's free education that we're providing. And if we were to actually send a bill, you'd be looking at, you know, thousands of dollars per person to go through and, you know, being able to come out and provide this uh, training to everyone free of charge is kind of honestly unheard of. That's such a cool service that you guys have. We're really lucky to be in the state of Nebraska with you. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely neat. We're, we're super excited about it. And, you know, ultimately, you know, I guess kind of my goal with, with all this, like I said, is, you know, the experiential learning is super, super important, but if I may to, to tag in why it's so important, um, like I said, that aha moment is, is fantastic when we can bridge that gap from didactic to you know, actual hands-on patient experience. But at the end of the day, it truly comes back to patient safety uh, if we're able, and, and provider safety, really. So if we're able to provide that hands-on experiential training to keep you know, our providers safe and in turn keep our patients safe, then that's just going to be a fantastic goal in the end where we can, we can fix that. Um, you know, talking about patient safety, someone... I don't know if we have enough time today, but I could get into it and ramble on and on and on and on um, about patient safety and what we need to do for healthcare and how we can fix it with experience learning. But, uh, you know, it, it's a big problem in the U.S. Um, you know, in short, it's the third leading cause of death in the United States is medical error behind heart disease and cancer, which is absolutely crazy when you think about it. But, you know, it's, it shows, hey, it's a big deal. Uh, and it's something that, you know, we have found we can fix with that experiential learning. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned, you mentioned COVID and obviously we, COVID is like dominated everything in healthcare for the last couple of years. But one of the, I think the important things uh, that it brings back is respiratory protection and respiratory protection plans. And I, I assume that a big part of what you guys do is, is respiratory protection and, you know, finding things that fit well and are comfortable and that people can wear, whether it's a, a, a mask respirator or a papper, I assume is something that you guys have an interest in and have been involved in and, and maybe trying to come up with better things that we can use in healthcare or, or emergency preparedness. Definitely. So with respiratory protection, you know, that's, that's definitely a buzzword and a hot topic lately, thanks to COVID. Um, you know, I remember the days when, you know, I first started in the ER um, working as a, as a paramedic uh, even as an EMT, um, just to kind of get some more experience and was told, hey, you've got a beard. You don't need to be fit tested. Um, just just put on this mask or hold your breath. Literally, I was told to hold my breath. <laughs> uh, like and at the time, I'm like, oh, OK, that sounds like a great idea. Um, and, you know, looking back, I'm like, wow, I can't imagine the stuff I brought home to my family uh, or you know, subjected myself to. But uh you know, with respiratory protection, the biggest thing here is able to do is, um, you know, we've got a, a 
huge uh, digital base of short little one to two minute videos uh, with just about every single um, you know, N95, N99, um, half face, full face uh, respirators that are out there. Uh, hey, this is how you properly don. This is how you properly doff it, um, and make to make sure you, you're getting a really, really good fit. Um, so we're able to help um, individuals, organizations uh, with the education aspect of how to properly don and doff the uh, you know the respirators that they're putting on. Um, at this time, we don't uh, go out and uh, provide or supplement uh, providing respiratory protection services, um, you know, the qualitative or quantitative fit testing. Uh, something we're exploring a little bit with some quantitative fit testing. Uh, we do some of that here in-house with our UNC students right now. We've got uh, port accounts to do quantitative fit testing, uh, which is more, uh, for the listeners that aren't familiar with, it's, it's very objective instead of being subjective of being underneath the hoods, like is that bitter? Is that sour? Is it sweet? I don't know. Um, here, you can't you can't fool the computer. It is what it is. Um, so you know that's definitely stuff we're able to, to offer as well. But education is the most uh, important thing, truly, in my opinion, because you know having a fit test uh, isn't just about what mask can fit you the best. There has to be an education piece that's associated with it as well. Because if you don't know how to put it on and take it off correctly and make sure it's comfortable and fits you well. The mask, it doesn't matter if, if you don't smell something uh, or taste something sweet or sour or if the computer says, hey, it fits you well. It's truly about can you put it on, take it off, and does it feel comfortable for you to work, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours? In? Yeah. A question on that, too, if I can ask real quick, sir, just to, on, uh, on that. You know, one of the things that they've been looking at is different types of masks, right? So, like, like maybe an elastomeric mask or anything. Is that anything that you guys have had any role in and working with uh, looking at these or talking to the industry or anything about that? So, nothing that we've worked with industry so far, into my knowledge. Um, you know, one of the, the biggest kind of hurdles that we're leading right now uh, in our, our, my director, Beth Beam, uh, Dr. Beth Thiem is working on is uh, incorporating more of a an official respiratory protection program that we can roll out, you know, across the whole University of Nebraska system, University of Nebraska, especially the medical center side of things, because uh, it's truly just kind of non-existent uh, still to this day, which is surprising. Yeah, I think that it's a it's a topic that needs more education out there, more resources, mm -hmm. and. I think the pandemic really brought it to light, among other things. <laughs> Definitely. It brought it to light, but still, I mean, two years in, uh, you know, I'd still imagine that we'd be a lot further along in the conversation than we will be. But, you know, there's just still walls up that, you know, everyone's still trying to bust down. Yeah, I, we're at the point where you can only do what you can do. And mm -hmm. even baby steps are progress. So Definitely. Um, I think it's really awesome. Uh, Rick, did you have any more questions on respiratory protection? No, no, that was great. Okay. Thanks. I just, uh, I, one of the things I don't know if you know, but I, one of my hats is, is I'm one associate medical director for employee health um, at Nebraska Medicine. And so we, you know, obviously do uh, and have a, a, a pretty good, I think, respiratory protection program. From my perspective, working with some smaller facilities around the state, everybody's got questions about respiratory protection. Um, I just got a whole list of questions from a long-term care facility today. And one of them was, we can't get a good fit on this guy who has a beard. What do we do? And I'm like, well, he can shave it or he can't work where he needs to wear it. Like, those are your options. Um, you know, how logistically do we get people some kind of respiratory protection plan if they can't be fit into an N95 mask, which has been our mainstay of respiratory protection all along. I mean, you can wear a papper, but the papper has to be where you are when you need it. Yep. Um, and so it doesn't do any good to have it in a storeroom in a completely different building when you're getting ready to go in and see somebody. So it's just, it's, it's interesting. It, things that sound easy in principle um, sometimes turn out to really get bogged down in logistics and be much more complicated than what you think they should be. Definitely. But people don't know what they don't know. And sometimes they don't wanna hear that answer. So um, it's been, I think, a long two years for everybody trying to figure that out, but um, it's really great that the state has support from you guys, from the ICAP team, 
Um, you know, we try to help collaborate and bring resources where we can. Um, I guess if there's anybody out there listening that needs resources, that is what we're here for. Most definitely. I mean, being able to reach out to you guys here at ICAP or even us here at Heroes and, uh, you know, shameless plug here so they can get on our website. Uh, it's unmcheroes.org uh, and have access to, you know, all of our training education uh, that's on there. It's free of charge on the website uh, and share it, uh, you know, left and right, guys. Uh, we also put our videos on YouTube as well. And I was just looking at this, you know, trying to compile my uh, month, March my March monthly report. Um, and yeah, I can't talk right now, but, uh, uh, you know, we actually had uh, a little over 1.95 million lifetime views so far uh, over our, our heroes educational content, just on YouTube alone. Uh, and in the last uh, month here in March, we had over 740 hours of people sitting at a computer phone, whatever, just watching our educational content. And keep in mind, most videos are anywhere from like one to 10 minutes. So having over 740 hours of people just sitting and watching our content, it's just unreal to think of. Yeah, I can personally vouch for the quality of education that Heroes has on their website. It is a great resource. Do you guys collaborate with other agencies that you um, that you work with a lot? You know, like, uh, you know, the there's NETEC and some of the other stuff that does uh, in this kind of similar type of realm, but not exactly what you guys do. Where do you guys get your content from and who are your peers? Great question. So um, NETEC is definitely an organization that we work with, uh, working with the, uh, you know, the Nebraska Biocontainment uh, Unit, the National Quarantine Center and their team, the Global Center for Health Security. Um, you know, anyone that is able to, you know, kind of be in the same realm. Uh, and those are a lot of the big groups just close by in proximity to us that we're able to work with uh, to provide the education and content. So uh, we're not going out and saying, hey, Heroes is your, your one and only uh, subject matter expert for this. Uh, we're just one of many resources available and we can pull all, all of our uh, education, content, curriculum. Um, and I guess one of the, the differences between us and all those you know, organizations I, I numbered off is you know, we're strictly focused on Nebraska. Um, you know, we want to benefit Nebraska providers. That is our, you know, our, our grant funded mission aspect of, you know, we want to benefit Nebraska students, healthcare providers, uh, and, uh, and those individuals. Now, if it benefits someone else across the country because they picked up our video, by all means, that's fantastic. But our, you know, first and foremost is we're here to benefit Nebraska. Um, now, we do know that our content has benefited uh, people across the country. Um, just the other day, uh, I actually had someone from Ukraine uh, reaching out, uh, asking for some additional content education uh, from some of the, the worries that they have. Uh, we've had the World Health Organization, um, the uh, just a splattering of uh, U.S. Uh, agencies uh, within Department of Justice, Homeland Security, uh, Environmental Protection Agency that have reached out, you know, just to me over the last year or two months and say, hey, um, we use this, it's great, or we use this for our training. It's like, well, it's fantastic. We're glad we're able to help. Uh, and that's kind of where that broad reach uh, beyond Nebraska comes from as well. Do you know if there's another program like yours in the U.S.? And another state has something similar? You know, I, I'm not 100% sure. So the, the neat thing about uh, Heroes is our uh, specific uh, twist towards natural disaster, uh, emergency response, seaburn uh, uh, response and activities and simulation. Now, within the Midwest, especially the upper Midwest, uh, you guys might be familiar with Simulation in Motion, Nebraska, Iowa, Montana, et cetera. Um, so they do something similar. Uh, they're relatively new here within the last you know, five or so years, um, but they don't have the uh, you know, specific focus of disaster emergency response preparedness, et cetera, that we have. Do you know, um we have listeners all around the country. If, if someone was wanting to start a program like Heroes in their state, um, would they be able to reach out to you and kind of look at your model? Definitely. Um, we're happy to, to help the best that we can. Um, and probably the best way for them to do that is to just reach out via email. And that would be heroes at unmc.edu for them to reach out and get in touch with us. Awesome. I will drop the website and the email address into our show notes as well Perfect. when we publish this. Yeah. 
That's very cool. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to the emergency preparedness and the tabletop exercises that you do. Um, did you say you work on a community level with those as well as working with an individual facility? That's the goal, um, you know, and especially a personal goal of mine as well. So anytime, anytime we can make it more interprofessional, interdisciplinary. Uh, if I go to, you know, a, a small Kirk Lexus hospital out in central Western Nebraska, and I'm working just with their emergency department, um, you know, that's great. Maybe I'll get those nurses, you know, the doc or advanced practice provider. But if I can take it a step further and work with uh, fire EMS, especially if they're a volunteer, uh, if I can work with the public health department uh, and I can work with uh, local law enforcement and emergency management, and then we can look at this at a large community response of, okay, so this is what is happening at the hospital. This is how law enforcement can come in, you know, protect uh and provide security to this situation as well. Cause you know, you can imagine, uh, you know, let's just take a uh, inorganophosphate leak, um, something that can be very, very popular uh, or you know, realistic out in uh, central Western Nebraska, agricultural country out there. Um, you know, there's gonna be max uh, people going to the hospital trying to seek treatment. You can't just let them in the front door. They need to be decon first. Uh, there needs to be security involved. Uh, to make sure it's a, a safe, easy process. Uh, and that's where law enforcement come in. And, you know, as far as decon goes, you don't ever want your, uh, you know, in a perfect world, like I say, you, you don't want your, you know, your nurses, your doctors working that decon line. Because once they get through the decon line and get inside the hospital, you need somebody left to treat them. So when there's groups of other people in the hospital, hey, what administrators can you pull? What uh, EVS people can you pull? They're fantastic to have on the decon team because, you know, they know how to clean. They're very thorough about how to clean, especially, you know, in a post-COVID environment. Uh, those are the people you want on, on your decon team. So anytime we can make it more interdisciplinary and have a more interprofessional approach by getting multiple people and having multiple layers on top uh, of that situational event uh, is going to be fantastic. That's great. Um, do you guys do recruiting with different entities in a community or do you kind of leave that on the facility? Like if you go into a hospital, do you say, hey, pull in your, you know, volunteer EMS fire department and the public health department and all these other people? So going into a, a training request um, like that. So let's say I get uh, a phone call or an email and we've got an online form that uh, we, we just put out here as well where somebody can request training from us. Um, we'll follow up with them, kind of get an idea of what they're looking for, uh, how we're able to help. And then, you know, I'll always approach the subject of oh, how big can we make this? How, how you know, willing uh, are you organization X to, uh, you know, to make this big, involve more people? Uh, and if we want to keep it small and come back at a later time, we definitely can do that as well. Um, but we want to have an active role in uh, bringing on those other role players uh, and other organizations to play as well, instead of just leaving it on the hospital to hey, bring in this person, this person, uh, truly to make it a full scale exercise, if you may uh, be efficient, we'll, we'll need a representative from each of those organizations so they can better play their part. Very cool. My master's degree, I have a concentration in emergency preparedness. So okay. my... My project was um, an emergency preparedness plan for home health agencies. I feel like they're kind of one of the underserved populations out there that always gets left mm -hmm. behind. So it was really interesting looking through those requirements for their emergency preparedness plan that they're required to have and um, just some of the unique challenges that go into that. Um, do you feel like there are a lot of those types of entities that just kind of get left behind and nobody really thinks about them? You know, um, I, I'd say yes, there are uh, entities out there, home health, uh, uh, long-term care facilities uh, being some of the big ones there as well. Um, you know, your ambulatory uh, care clinics, uh, surgical centers, uh, sometimes are an afterthought as well because we think hospital first responder. Those are the first thing that pop into people's heads all the time. Yeah. I know even those smaller entities, they have those EP requirements 
that they have to participate in, in exercises. So um, it's really good that you guys are looking at a community approach and bringing in other people. That's awesome. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, so this, I mean, great. I'm learning a ton. Thanks, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I guess the one question is, is what's, what's the future for uh, Heroes program look like? Where, where's it going? Where do you, where do you want to take this? Um, assuming you stay in your role for, let's say, you know, a year, five years, 10 years. That's a great question. So, um, you know, like I mentioned uh, previously, the uh, live training, um, that experiential training we can come out and provide in person really just hasn't been there thanks to COVID uh, over the last two years or so. So really being able to just blow that up um, and being able to expand the team is something that I'd love to do for us. Um, you know, like I said earlier, we're a small team. There's really only three of us full-timers that are, are hammering away at this. Um, but being able to get us to the point where, you know, I don't want to say we're overworked and over busy, but and we have to get to the point where we have to turn people away. I don't want to ever have to do that, but I want our name to get out there enough where um, we can continue to grow, uh, provide this very, very important uh, education and training experience because, you know, to have someone train on a cardiac arrest, you know, that's something you can probably plan on uh, happening anywhere in a hospital on a daily basis, if not more. Uh, so it's a very high frequency event. Uh, now a natural disaster, a sea burn activity, you know, that's going to be a very uh, high risk, but low frequency uh, uh, topic. So being able to, to get out there and provide this education and training to those uh, to you know, all these agencies and community organizations uh, and keep it more on the, the forefront uh, of their mind is something I'd love to do. You know, most facilities, agencies, et cetera, uh, really only do about one, uh, if that, uh, kind of tabletop exercise or, or full scale, quote unquote, exercise. Um, you know, throughout the year to check a box, if you may. Um, but I, I would argue that they're probably not truly having a positive impact on their, you know, providers uh, and the, the people working at the bottom of the rung that are in the trenches um, that probably admin would venture to say that they are. Uh, and that just truly comes from, you can only get so much done through a one hour webinar uh, through a, you know, a, a tabletop exercise, then when you, hey, this is what we have, we're going to work um, through this uh, situation. You know, I've got live patients, actors, I've got human patient simulators uh, that we can work all the way through from start to finish. And at the very, very end, we're going to debrief it, talk about what went well, what could have been approved upon. Um, and, you know, when we can incorporate even in uh, video recording, to the simulation activity as well. That's just hands down one of the best services that we can provide. So, you know, video recording is something I mentioned. You might think, well, why do we need that in training? So I, I like to mention this all the time. You know, if a professional athlete gets to watch and study film about their past performance and watch their, their opponents so they can improve and get ready for the next game, why can't our healthcare professionals do the exact same thing. If they're able to watch themselves uh, go through an activity and then uh, you know, come back and say, I thought I did this, but I looked at myself in the film and no, I didn't do that or I could have done this better. Um, and it's not just so much, you know, maybe a, a rudimentary skill they're looking to do, but if we can also kind of have some of those, those soft, soft touches, soft skills of, you know, how can we improve their leadership? How can we improve their communication? How can we improve um, just the way that they're going to show respect to someone else that comes from a completely different background, but because of the emergency situation they're in, they have to work with them. Uh, it's not something you can, you can always teach. Um, I think that, you know, we've learned a lot of lessons over the past 18 to 20 months with COVID. Um, it's kind of a situation that we're in that nobody ever thought we would be in. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you could go back in time and give advice to people pre-COVID on emergency planning, what advice would you have for them? Hmm. You know, that is a great question. And I don't think there's any one answer I could point to uh, on there. Um, you know, I guess two things that I've experienced personally 
um, with COVID specifically, making sure that we can train, and this isn't necessarily emergency planning too much, but it, it ties into it, bear with me, is, is teaching our providers how to do an adequate upper respiratory nasal swab, uh, which is you know, really non-existent still. I, I cringe every time I watch uh, national TV and still see people swabbing incorrectly. And I just pray that it is old B-roll footage that they're you know, digging up from pre-COVID or early COVID days uh, that they haven't replaced. Um, being able to adequately test and see where numbers are uh, is going to help with emergency pre-planning and you know concurrent planning of stuff that's going on because you don't know how bad a situation is unless you have good enough test numbers and your you know your test numbers are only going to be as good as a sample collected. Uh, I was actually part of a, a program, uh, an effort here uh, at UNMC Nebraska Medicine to train uh, healthcare education. Uh, healthcare professionals uh, in an educational environment, how to take a prick swab um, and how to do it correctly. Um, and we probably impacted just hands-on training in about a two to three month time span. A couple thousand people uh, within the Omaha metro area um, ended up getting the National Guard involved as well when they were doing Test Nebraska stuff and uh, have put that at online, have done uh, webinar training, you know, back in the early days of COVID of, hey, this is how you take a proper test. Um, and then I guess probably the, the second aspect of pre-planning for COVID, if I can go back in, in the day of, hey, respiratory protection, respiratory protection, respiratory protection. It, you know, it's something that nobody wants to talk about. And, you know, I mentioned when I was in my early days of, of working in the hospital, and it's a relatively big hospital here in the Omaha metro area, I was told, uh, just grab any mask that fits. Or, you know, we're not going to fit test you because you have a beard. Maybe there's a paper or hold your breath. Uh, that'll truly stay with me for, for a long time of being told, um, hold my breath, um, because that's not proper planning. That's not going to keep our, uh, our healthcare professionals, our team members, our colleagues, our students safe. Um, you know, there is already a very, very large gap of healthcare professionals we need huge nursing gap. They don't have enough nurses as there is. Um, you know, having, uh, you know, family practice physicians, there's a very gap there. And there's other healthcare professionals uh, where the numbers just don't need to be where they're at. And um, being able to have respiratory protection services and stuff in place, programs in place, and taking it seriously, making the financial cost um, not a barrier and understanding that hey, we're going to make this, I don't even want to say a sacrifice because it's not, um, but we're, we're going to make this sacrifice, for lack of better words, and, and bite the bullet. We're going to spend this money. We're going to have a good respiratory protection uh, program in place. We're going to have the equipment necessary so we can protect our work staff, our personnel, um, so they feel comfortable and confident coming to work and being able to go home to their families. Super important. Uh, you know, I'm sure we all have heard the stories or have you know friends and family that we know that in the early days of COVID, they didn't go home. They slept in a camper out in their driveway or they got a hotel room because uh, they didn't want to subject their, their family members to it. Um, you know, that's a lot of stuff that we probably could have fixed early on in, in the, you know, the, the COVID days of if we just had a good respiratory protection plan in place and the training to back it up too. Totally agree. We need to have, instead of another round of free at-home COVID tests, Let's get some funding for some free respiratory protection education Definitely. and supplies. <laughs> yeah. If there's anybody, the president's listening right now. That's what we need. <laughs> you guys uh, have uh, quite the audience, if that's the case. <laughs> oh, no, not if, at I, all. if I would have known, we would have stirred this conversation a few other different ways. <laughs> Some of those trips are long. They 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 scour the bottom for podcasts to listen to when they're when they're flying around. Definitely. <laughs> uh, well, great. Thank you so much for joining us and answering all our questions. We're super happy to have you here uh, with us today. No, guys, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and and chat about uh, what the Heroes Program does and who we are and and how we're able to help your listeners, uh, whether they're here in Nebraska or beyond. That's awesome. And I will drop all of those resources into the show notes for everybody. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want more information, just 
scroll down a little bit and click on those links. Um, it looks like we are coming up to the top of the hour, Austin. Do you have any questions for us? Hmm. So one of the questions I was thinking about um, revolves around patient safety. So in your uh, personal professional experience, what is a barrier to healthcare professionals recognizing that they're not perfect uh, and that mistakes are going to be made? And how can we take those mistakes made and use them in an educational environment to learn from? Uh, you know, here recently in the news was a, a former nurse out in Nashville, Tennessee, who was just convicted um, of murder, homicide, a negligent homicide, uh, for a medical error that was made back in, you know, what was it, uh, four years ago, here, so back in 2017, uh, 2019, excuse me. But, uh, you know, so I guess not uh, probably diving too far into it, because that's probably a whole other topic that we can talk about another time. But, you know, what's, what is the one thing you guys think you could do uh, from your experience to make patient safety recognize that, hey, it's, it's a big deal. Um, we're, we're not infallible. Um, and what can we do to recognize it and help fix it? Because, you know, it's like I said earlier in the, the show, it's the third leading cause of death in the U.S. And, um, that's just truly unacceptable, in my opinion. That's a great question. You hit us with a hard one today, Austin. Yeah, that is a great, that is a great question. I mean, and I think, you know, in the last, you know, this century, I'll say after, you know, to air as human came out, uh, you know, and realized that, uh, you know, just kind of shed light on all of this, that, you know, how much there are errors and everything else. And at the end of the day, I think you're exactly right. I mean, we are all human. We're not infallible. We get tired or stressed or distracted or, or sometimes our systems aren't perfect either that we have set up. Um, uh, and so this is a, you know, as you said, this is a huge topic that's, you know, hard to have one answer or discussion to. But I mean, I think just having a culture where if there's a mistake, it's not punishable. And you also have safety systems set up in place so that there's multiple checks and balances along the way um, so that you're not just relying on one person to make that one human decision you know, every time to get it right, because they're not going to. Um, and so I, I, I think a lot of the culture has changed some, but we still got a long, long ways to go. Um, and realizing that, that, that they happen, uh, I'm not saying that makes it inevitable. We can certainly do better and we can learn from mistakes. And you talked about doing, using that for you know, game film. You look at the game and you can figure out what your tendencies are and how to improve. And we could do the same in healthcare. Uh, you know, the air traffic control industry does the same thing. You know, they, they went back and looked through and, and corrected lots of uh, errors that they had in the past. And it's, you know, super safe industry at this point in time. And I think our goal is to get healthcare as safe as possible. No, I, I think that's a, a great answer. Uh, Rick is, you know, aviation is fantastic with their, uh, you know, with their, their safety record now. And a lot of that comes from that simulation training that you just wouldn't expect to have aviation training without simulation uh, combined these days. Um, you know, do no harm uh, is something you brought up. That was a paper that dropped in 99. There's actually a, a documentary even that came out here just in the last five years or so. Uh, that was really good. In that documentary, one of the things they mentioned is um, with medical error and harm today, it's about, was it like 440,000, don't quote me 100%, uh, 440,000 deaths um, every year, uh, which is about seven to eight jumbo jets crashing every single day. And when you think about it in that context, and um, you know, we see you know, one jet that crashes in China, and all of a sudden, uh, the entire you know, 737-800 planes are grounded across the entire uh, you know country of China. And it's happened here in the U.S. Geez, just uh, last, what was it, in the last year or so, we finally got off a 20-month uh, grounding of the uh, Boeing 737 MAX planes off of two crashes that didn't even happen here in the U.S. Um, and we, if we can do that off one crash and ground and halt aviation industry um, because of, of one mistake, whether it be pilot error or 
uh, or even just mechanical error, why is it not acceptable? And this is a kind of a question I pose to our learners today is, our listeners today is why is it acceptable to have all these medical errors happening and we don't, uh, we don't do anything about it. We just brush it under the table and say, I, it's, it's to be expected. People are going to make mistakes because you wouldn't want your pilot making a mistake. You want your uh, mechanic, your car making a mistake. Uh, you don't want your uh, Uber driver making a mistake uh, when you didn't want to you know, drive drunk yourself. So uh, lots of things I think we could uh, talk about further, but no, definitely a good answer. Now I have to compete with you now, Rick. That was really good. <laughs> uh, Sarah, what say you? Uh, well, I come from a dental background, so it's drastically different than a hospital setting. Yeah. Um, I think that a big barrier I've noticed in some of the smaller facilities is a, a lack of education in those soft skills. So, you know, being able to approach your coworker and say, you know, I see that you made a mistake. There's this potential for patient harm. Let's work on fixing this instead of, you know, feeling like you're tattling on someone or you're going to get them in trouble. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to approach those people and, um, and tell them that they've done something wrong and maybe it's not necessarily their fault or they didn't know. Um, but I think that that is, is really one of the biggest barriers that I've seen, having that culture of being able to speak honestly about safety mm -hmm. and, and recognizing that in yourself and others. No, that's good. That's good. In the past, uh, not, not here in my position with Heroes, but I've been involved in uh, simulation, that experiential training where uh, it's delivering uh, difficult news, uh, having difficult conversations. Uh, with people from various different backgrounds uh, and you know how do you go in and deliver that difficult news to someone that just lost a family member or uh, to a patient where you know you made a mistake and uh, didn't catch something that could have been fixed earlier um, you know if we can just kind of take down some of those barriers that I think we put up around ourselves to to protect ourselves and just have you know honest to god conversation with our coworkers and say hey we got in this to take care of people and, you know, let's work together and take care of people and it's okay. We're going to make mistakes, but we got to be honest about it. We got to work together through it. So I think that's fantastic. Uh, your point on there. I think there's also maybe a, a lack of education on the receiving end too. Like, you know, somebody says you did this wrong. You have a tendency to get offended. Like how dare they blame me mm -hmm. for whatever happened. But if we, I'm going to, fall back on the culture conversation that we do in Nebraska medicine. If we assume positive intent, this is about patient safety. It's not about my performance. I think that is a really important step in that. No, that's good. That's really good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to cover here in the next couple of minutes? Uh, you know, we went through a lot guys. Um, kind of went all over the place there, but, uh, no, I mean, nothing I can think of that, uh, that comes to mind right now. Uh, lots of stuff that we, we kind of scratched the surface of that, uh, you know, whether it's with me or somebody else for a future show that you guys could talk about a little bit more, uh, definitely be listening. Um, always love what you guys are doing uh, with the podcast and being able to, to go back. I was trying to prep myself uh, like coming in, it's like, all right, let's see how mean they are to all the people coming on. <laughs> I listened back. Uh, I've just had it on play and I've, I've gone back, oh, geez, at least a good couple dozen, uh, you know, previous podcasts. Like, all right, let's see what I'm in for. Um, so I, I was prepared coming into it a little bit, I thought. Uh, but uh, you guys are good. He asked some difficult questions. So I was, I was pleased. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thanks. The kind words. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We'll definitely have to have you guys back on, especially you keep us posted if something uh, – new or uh you know uh, revolutionary or, or changes come up in in your world because we'd love to have you back on so we can get the word out oh most definitely and you know um it is uh a friday uh it's it's april 1st for your listeners uh and without giving that away too much i encourage you to go check out our twitter uh at unmc heroes and check out our new hire uh that we just announced here earlier today outstanding all right. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much, Austin, for joining us for this hour. We appreciate it. 
Well, thanks, I'm going to go look at Twitter right now. <laughs> You're supposed to be working, Rick. Get off your phone. <laughs> You're doing all the work. I just talk, remember? Isn't that how this goes? Oh, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you to all of our listeners out there for joining us for today's episode of Dirty Drinks. If you want to follow in on the conversation, you can check out our Twitter account as well. It's at dirty underscore drinks. And we would love to have you on as a guest or just chat with you on Twitter. So we will catch everybody for the next episode. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.